listening to the Gospel for Planet Earth podcast. Well, welcome to the Gospel for Planet Earth podcast. I'm your host, Carl Gessler, and with me in the studio once again, but it's been a little while, is my friend John Immel. Welcome back to the podcast, John. Thank you, Carl. And when I say in the studio, I don't mean my own studio. We're actually up at John's place today, so thanks for sharing your home with us. We'll, we'll call it a studio. All right. Sounds more legit. Yeah, it is more legit. <laughs> well, it was appropriate that I came to your place today because you're, you're bringing us the word today, um, and the word is om. You're going to tell us why you stopped saying om, and for some people that word means nothing, but John used to be a yogi, uh, and if you want to hear his full testimony, you can actually see it as well as hear it on our Gospel for Planet Earth YouTube channel. So we'll have links below today's episode if you want to go back and hear John's story, because you've been a lot of things, John. You've been a Muslim and a Hindu and yeah, and, and I don't other other things. I forget the names of them. <laughs> spiritual rock <laughs> guy or something. <laughs> uh, but John's going to be telling us about why he stopped saying Om, and I was hoping that maybe you could also do a parallel podcast for me about how to stop saying um when you're doing a podcast but that's that's another subject tell us about the word om what is what is this word and why does anyone care about it okay so om is considered by yogis to be the universal sound it's considered to be the the sound of the pulsation of reality and so uh yogis will say om and uh people from the Hindu tradition and several other Eastern religious traditions will say Om in order to transcend themselves and to enter into some kind of cosmic union. That sounds really like a Star Wars thing. Um, those are big, big concepts. It actually is very similar to a kind of Star Wars thing. Oh, wow. On a philosophical base that. level. Yeah. Oh, You're yeah. Right, though. Yeah, it is. And it's what people are attempting to to do is to kind of unite with the force actually Whoa. well that's actually quite an amazing segue that i didn't try to do but uh because <laughs> glad you mentioned it <laughs> yeah me too when we uh, so the sentence you just, or the uh, para- paragraph you just gave us on ohm mm-hmm. uh, sounds otherworldly i mean it sounds it's like mystical it's kind of eastern but it's actually rather huge in the United States right now. What, yeah. This, so why would we be talking about it on the Gospel for Planet Earth? Well, because people are seeking something in yoga uh, mm-hmm. that I think they won't find there, but they will find it in Jesus. Uh, but tell us wh- maybe a little bit, why do you think people are so into the yoga scene right now? Uh, I think there's several reasons. I think the message of serenity is uh, a rally call for many people. And I think this even ties into uh, what OM or the kind of feeling that OM is supposed to produce, right? When you transcend yourself, you no longer have to be embroiled in all the drama of life. And um, and so there's some hints there already uh, to what people uh, are looking for. You know, uh, life is hard, life is difficult. And when you go to a yoga class, there's, you, you, people realize that there's something more than a stretch that they're getting. It's not just like going to uh, the gym and stretching your legs. There's something really different there. And, uh, and people uh, r- really like the veneer of it. You know, it's a beautiful setting. It's often... Uh, 
you know, very soft colors, very uh, kind of peaceful colors. And I think that people naturally uh, desire to have peace. Uh, the And so um, that desire itself is, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing. Um, so they come to yoga and, uh, and then... Uh, as they get deeper into it, they start to realize the very spiritual nature of yoga. Okay. So seeking serenity, uh, you know, why are people seeking it in yoga now when, it, I mean, yoga in the United States has never been so big. Why, oh, it's huge now. Why is it different now? How did, it, how did yoga begin to be what people looked to for serenity? Well, I think uh, that's a more complex question. Uh, I think, first of all, the psychology industry, uh, the mental health industry, has uh, has really adopted Buddhism as their baby. Whenever I read psychology books these days or articles, you see all these quotes from the Buddha um, in the articles. And so what you see is that the whole psychology industry has embraced uh, Eastern uh, style religions, and there are some really big reasons for that, uh, and uh, and so they're they're promoting those techniques uh, from the universities, and the intellectuals uh, are are sort of uh, pushing that. Uh, but I I don't think that's the whole story, too. I think that uh, one of the reasons why uh, Om and uh, Eastern religions really appeals to uh, the academic world is because it doesn't make any uh, any hard or fast statements uh, about the nature of reality. And so, or it doesn't uh, give you any specific rules. And I think that all of us uh, want to, um, you know, on some level, be free of rules and, uh, and just, you know, kind of uh, let our instincts, um, you know, drive the rule the show. Um, and so it's a very comfortable... Uh, I would say the Eastern religious um, idea is very comfortable for people to talk about and uh, and not get in disagreement, not have to ever get in a disagreement about something. So this this talk is actually springing from an article that I read that you wrote about, yeah. about the story, and you opened the article uh, with uh, where you said the most transformative moment in my Ayurvedic education, and you are. An Ayurvedic practitioner. Yes, yes. That's uh, how I got introduced to uh, the Eastern spiritual ideas. And just a quick synopsis of what is Ayurveda, just so people know what okay, you're okay. speaking of. So um, Ayurveda is uh, it's a model for people to understand how food affects their body and how their lifestyle choices affect their body. Uh, it is uh, how habits basically affect their body. And it's a language and a tool for that. Uh, and so Ayurveda itself is um, is very systematic. Uh, it's very similar, actually, to the uh, to the Greek uh, model of medicine, and also even the Greek theory of the virtues. Uh, if you want to take that back to antiquity, um, so a uh, very practical, systematic tool that grew up in the uh, Vedic period of India. Uh, alongside of yoga, and so there has been a lot of uh, cultural. Uh, interaction between yoga and Ayurveda over the years, even though their model for health and even their vision of the person looks very different. And so I still feel very comfortable uh, practicing Ayurveda, but I've stopped saying Om 
and uh, and looking towards that yoga spirituality uh, because there are some uh, deep problems with uh, with the model. Yeah. So you, uh, like most people, you assumed a a uh, Eastern religious um, association with Ayurveda when you were getting into it. Um, yeah. But it's, you're saying actually as Western roots, and you practice it now as a uh, as a Christian. I do practice it as a Christian, yeah, and uh, and I've researched uh, this. I researched it thoroughly uh, in the from the standpoint of what does Ayurveda believe and uh, how does Ayurveda look at the person uh, to make sure that that was uh, even okay for me to continue. Mm-hmm. So you had an unusual encounter, though. You said in this article that your most fan- transformative moment was when your Ayurvedic uh, education. I'm sorry. You said um, one of your most transformative moments in your Ayurvedic education was the day your teacher told you to never say the word Om. And if you do, you will lose your home, your career, and your wife. That doesn't sound like something uh, a Hindu would say or a yogi would say. Tell, <laughs> tell us about that and, and what. tell us how you processed that. Too. Well, my, our teacher... Uh, was very spiritual. He was very steeped in the Eastern uh, traditions. And uh, and so to me, that was almost shocking. Because remember at the time, I was really into it. You know, I was real, I, I, I had embraced it uh, entirely. And so when he said this to me, uh, it was more or less a shock because it suddenly, I suddenly realized that those things which I held most dear to me were at risk. So did he say it negatively? Was he saying this like, don't say it because you're you're going to lose it, or or was he saying count the cost because um, do you want to do you want to lose these things? It was a warning. Okay, it, it was, was a, a cautionary okay. warning, and and at the same time, he uh, would chant Om at the end of every class, just like you would at the end of a yoga class. That's uh, weird. Every yoga class, they chant Om at the end. It's part of their liturgy. It's part of their their ritual. And mm-hmm. uh, yoga classes across the country do that. Uh, there are several things in the yoga liturgy of every yoga class. Uh, so he didn't mind losing his home career and his wife, or uh, maybe that's getting ahead of the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing: is that in the Eastern religions, there's a fundamental tension between uh, spiritual advancement and um, and living in the world, and so uh, when if if you if I were to go to a village in India and just talk to uh, the families there, the husbands or the wives, uh, and I've done this, uh, they would say to me, "Oh, uh, in fact, they did say to me, like, oh, you're living the, the the life that we wish we could live. You know that you're detached, you're." Um, you know, you're doing the spiritual work, but I'm stuck here with a family and stuck with a home and a job, and I'm not free. I'm not liberated. Uh, and uh, and so they would lament this. And I always thought that was really strange because I grew up a Christian. My, my parents were very Christian. Um, you know, I grew up in an Italian Catholic family. To us, family and God were not contradictions. Mm. Right. And here these people are saying that you're living the ideal being attached from those things. Yes. Yeah. So in your um, article, you uh, and I will have a link to the article also today. We'll have a, a plethora of links for you. A plethora. You. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you said that you were, you were interested in it because of the health 
um, yes. benefits. And yet I, I did underline in it later that you, um, there was a certain, there was, there was more that you were after. Tell me, like, because I think, I think this is important because I think it will tie into why our culture is now looking to yoga for something. We need to know what that thing is. What yeah. Did, what did you go into it for? And Well, yeah. I just thought it was pretty cool, mystical experience. I just want to say that it wasn't really for the health benefits of Ohm, but I th- really thought that I was entering into this mystical realm. And you said otherworldly realm earlier. And, you know, if Ohm is the sound of pulsating reality, is it otherworldly or is it very worldly or whatever? That's a that's a, uh, a question we can sort of think about. Depends but, on your definition of reality. I yeah, suppose. it does. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so for me, I just thought it was super cool because with Ohm, the idea is that you leave your body and then you become a spirit only floating. So it's like a meditated, instigated drug trip. It uh, absolutely, yeah, okay. and um, and I and this is not like just me saying it, but um, you know, uh, Hindus themselves will say this, and okay. you know, if you look at folks like Ramdas, who was out of the '60s and the and the LSD kind of trippy '60s thing, that's what they were saying at that time, mm-hmm. and that so this was like part of what their journey was, is they would take these drugs to get outside of themselves and supposedly this is going to give you this objective perspective on things Mm -hmm. and uh uh but you can see you know as you just get into it that there's there's just a few issues there's a few big issues there um yeah so for me it was an experience that i was seeking and i thought you know uh that you could uh label an experience as a spiritual experience in that way and and i thought ohm in some way was unnatural uh and so i I, you know i was kind of seeking that you were seeking the unnatural because that was cool i yeah there was something cool about it It was like oh this is different this is new this is exotic what's that you're carving your own path exactly exactly (laughs) yeah Aren't we all <laughs> victims of our own individuality? <laughs> so, uh, but like I said in the earlier in the article, you did mention the health benefits, um, and then oh yeah, later I uh, later in the article you the said, effects. I mentioned the effects. Oh okay, yeah. Later in the article, you said in Ohm, I found the freedom from painful emotions I was searching for. Yes, and I thought that was really revealing. Yeah, uh, because. A lot of times we do things where we're seek, we try things and we think we're doing it just for fun or we think we're doing it because we're compelled by an argument and we don't, we're not in tune with the other driving factors and uh, that are leading us towards something. Um, and I've seen this many times because uh, as people who have listened to the podcast know uh, that my wife and I have traveled around the country and we've done a lot of uh, singing ministry in rehab centers and so many times people will tell you that their addiction began with uh, when they they were just experimenting with a drug or something. They did something, but the drug made them for the first time, they say, not feel pain. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. looks, it seems to me that that is uh, just yoga is another one of those things or saying om is another one of those ways of trying to escape that pain. Yeah, yeah. Whenever if I got into, uh, say, a fight or something like that, or an argument with somebody, I would immediately go into uh, what's called empty bowl meditation, and you know, and then end that with chanting Om to kind of distance myself from that. And uh, and so I became good at that. And then 
problems started happening. Yeah, so tell us about that. Did you <laughs> did you lose your wife and your home and your dog and your truck? <laughs> um, well, uh, the first thing that started happening is that when you um, attack your feelings on that on on such a level, or when you're seeking detachment, uh, it you kind of the problem is you might succeed, right? <laughs> so, and that's where the loss of, uh, where you kind of lose touch, right? Because in touch, there's an attachment. You know, there's like, uh, you know, we're bonded um, and even just to yourself, right? Like, uh, um, I, you know, the power passions, our instincts, all those are there uh, to give us life, right? Even to give us personality, um, our desires, our passions, our impulses, our urges, they form our nature. You know, if I'm seeking detachment, I am, you know, I am losing my touch with those things on some level. And, uh, and so that became my spiritual practice. And in the beginning, you know, it wasn't such a big deal. But then later, I started to just feel more numb. And, uh, and that, uh, that nothing really mattered anymore. You know, I started to cultivate indifference. And so that feeling of indifference is so gray, you know, so impersonal. And it really, uh, I was actually at a, a Christian men's retreat because my, my, my dad was part of a men's group at our Catholic church. And uh, I, was, um, I was sitting there with this group of men. And the priest at one point said, Indifference is the greatest sin in Christianity, right? The opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. And I was like, well, I'm cultivating indifference. <laughs> I do it as part of my spiritual practice every day. Right, and, right. and so that was like another big shock to me. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm doing the worst thing and it that a person could do. It wasn't necessarily so much that someone labeled it a a sin and said you're going to get a really big punishment for it, but it was more realizing that it was kind of a violent thing to do, right? I mean, because a lot of, I know a lot of people who had said, well, my parents told me this was a sin and that was a sin, like sex outside of marriage is a sin, but I enjoyed it, so you know, yeah, doing it. Who cares if it's a quote-unquote sin according to your God's book? You know, that's that's the attitude a lot of people have. If you take the laws as being arbitrary and not made for our, our hearts. Right. Yeah. But you're saying it, it's kind of struck a deeper... Sensing you just like what am I, what am I doing to myself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had to step back for a second and say, Italian Catholic bring up, brought up on one side, which is a passionate culture, mm -hmm. and now I'm practicing uh, erasing all the passions. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a tough uh, switch right there. Holy moly! <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> What is moly, by the way? That's a, that's a rabbit trail for you. Subject of another podcast. Okay, okay right. <laughs> so did you stop saying om at that point? Well, uh, there was another problem that I saw with the yoga spiritual worldview, which is the goal of yoga is to escape the cycle of birth and death. And I didn't, didn't want to do that, and nor did I think that that was healthy. I thought that death was the opposite of goodness in general. Um, and I don't mean that if I die someday, it's the opposite of goodness. No, I'm, I'm hoping to go to heaven and things like that. But to seek death itself is the opposite of goodness. And to be indifferent to something is kind of, in a way, to let it die. And, uh, and so I started to 
uh, think like in the under the guise of liberating me from painful emotions that I was uh, seeking uh, in a way loss of life loss uh, uh, to escape that cycle of birth and death um, uh, and there's this one line in the text uh, that said the Ayurvedic. This was text. well, okay. So yeah, this is in an Ayurvedic text, uh, and it's very un-Ayurvedic. In a chapter uh, uh, from the classical text on Ayurveda and the mind, which is wholly unlike the rest of the Ayurvedic opus, right? And so, like, there's this weird chapter that's like, what's going on here, right? And in one sentence of that chapter, uh, and this chapter is all about um, the kind of yoga philosophy. Um, and in one chapter, it said that the that bliss comes uh, from erasing every last shred of yourself ever having existed, and that kind of level of total uh, self annihilation, to me, uh, seemed the antithesis of of life and goodness itself. Uh, confronting everything that I ever thought. Uh, was good. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, and then I was in, a, the next time I was in a yoga class, we got to this point where you practice Shavasana, it's called, and it's called corpse pose. And they do it, it's also part of the yoga liturgy. Every single time you go to yoga class, at the end of yoga class, you practice being a corpse in Shavasana. And then you say Om after it. And I realized that I was participating in this liturgical ritual of dying, and I, uh, I was, I became frightened. Yeah. Well, to put an exclamation point on that, that's a satanic mode because um, it is anti-creational. It's saying, in effect, that the creation isn't good, that I'm not good, like I'm not in the sense of that I don't have value mm-hmm. uh, not worth living it's not worth living and it's an abandonment of hope totally you know it's just saying there is no hope so we'll check out as soon as we can as efficiently as we can although it's interesting like um, it, I, I guess I don't really know this so maybe it's just sad I don't know if it's interesting or not but is there a high rate of suicide among Hindus I don't know that hmm. I don't know that it would seem logical I don't know that. I know that uh, that uh, Hindus don't kill. I mean, the the ideal is not to kill anything because there's this idea of karma, right? So you have the Jains who won't even step on a bug. So I would guess that, and uh, not just guess, but I know that murder, even murder of the self, is considered to be a violence. And uh, and so, you know, I uh, I don't I just don't know the statistics on that. And there are so many other factors too, because poverty and other things can also play a role, right, um, one right. way or the other. So I don't want to necessarily make an assumption or even plant a seed in that area. Uh, but I do want to say that how subtle this was, because it came to me in this package of peace and beauty and um, and tranquility, right? And like. That's a word I never use anymore, actually, tranquility. I use peace and serenity, yes, but never tranquility because tranquility implies a, a stopping of all movement. And this is what Om is supposed to create. The idea of Eastern harmony is that you reach a still point. And you see this promoted all over the place. Just Google the word peace and click on the images and you'll see images of a lake that's still with no waves 
or um, a person sitting in meditation without any movement, totally isolated from the rest of reality with their eyes shut to reality. Um, and this is supposed to represent harmony. And I had to ask myself, is that harmony? Is that as I always understood it? And it's like, no. Uh, as a lover of classical music, I see harmony as all of this drama playing itself out together, all these movements within a piece of music, and um, and everything is balanced, yes, but not still. And, um, and so I felt duped. I felt tricked. I felt that I was like coming to yoga class for embodiment and for movement, but I was being led towards nirvana, which nirvana means without movement. It's just that's the translation of the word. Right, otherwise Nirvana. known as dead. Otherwise known as dead, right? And to me, life was full of passion, full of movement, and yeah, harmony means when my wife is upset at something, I respond right away. I don't just sit and close my eyes and pretend it doesn't exist. And if uh, and if there's a situation where I might be in a fight, I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, how do I respond to this? How do I meet this challenge? How do I um, how do I create peace from this all at the same time, right? And so it's uh, a state of almost hyperactivity, not a loss of activity. And uh, and so um, I just, I, at that point, I just felt tricked. Like, how did, how did this one thing that I thought was one way become just the exact opposite at its root and core of it? And, I, and, I, and I've talked about this with other yogis, and they say, well you just got into it too much or you just did it too often. I don't take it that seriously. And I was like, well, okay, so are you agreeing with me and just saying, well, because I don't, um, I don't really like care about it at all, um, it's not a problem? They're indifferent about being <laughs> indifferent. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was like, Oh, that's not really an argument. Like either this leads somewhere good if you do it and trust in it, because that's what I did is I trusted it, um, or uh, or it leads somewhere else. You know, now I'm not saying a stretch is 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 a bad thing, but I'm I don't want to practice being a corpse. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, it's um one of the things that people object to most that I hear most, at least in my generation, about why they don't believe in God is that they um, is is the problem of pain. You know, people are disappointed. They've seen hypocrites. They've seen, uh, you know, bad things have happened to them. They say, if God is loving, then why did dot, dot, dot. And I love this line that you had in here uh, in your article. You said that true, that it's true that the endless cycle of life may be a source of suffering. But for me, it also is the source of goodness and love. And I think that that's, really the essence i mean i think that's the argument of the bible yeah. you know i think that that's the argument of genesis is that genesis is not um as i've heard it taught many times in fundamentalist circles it's not presenting a perfect world um that then fell because adam made a because uh, adam sinned it's presenting the world as it is which is good but has evil in it mm-hmm. and god has purposes working through that in spite of the evil and that evil itself while not a creation of god has its its role to play within god's purposes do you 
agree with that. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a really interesting, uh, uh, really interesting stuff there. Uh, is evil a thing or not? Right in the classical theology, that evil is not a thing, but an absence of a thing. It's the absence of life. It's uh, what's against. Uh, life and it's so anti-creational. Yeah, it's anti-creational yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So evil is that which does not exist in a way, and uh, there are all kinds of ways in which we deprive ourselves of full existence throughout our life. Mm-hmm. And I was talking with someone, you know, just sort of researching this issue, you know, and and just thinking like about my own choices. How have I deprived myself of life? throughout my life in many ways. And there's, so uh, evil looks more like a vacuum than a presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was, uh, was very fascinating uh, to me. And, uh, and relating it back to this, that here I was, you know, seeking um, non-existence, you know, <laughs> seeking my own absence, you know, crazy. Yeah, and that crazy. is what, how Jesus described the Satan. He said that, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and that's exactly what you're yeah. referring to. So, so yeah, I want to mention one more thing about this uh, non-existence thing and also transcendence and detachment. Is uh, It took me a, a long while because for myself, I, uh, I, that transcendence is— transcendence is uh, something that I enjoy in a way, right? Like I enjoy that feeling of looking— Beyond, uh, looking beyond, you know, trying to find God, um, you know, uh, and getting out of myself in a way. I I enjoyed that. Uh, And so uh, to me, when I realized that there were some real negative issues with uh, this system of spirituality I was practicing, it created a lot of inner conflict for me because I was like, okay, I enjoy this, but, um, but there's something really wrong about it how do I resolve this? And one day it kind of hit me like a thunderbolt what the opposite of detachment was. And uh, and that word is cherishing. And this is what I learned about Ohm, is that in Ohm, because you are getting outside of yourself, transcending yourself and entering into this sort of cosmic union, there's no loyalties. There's no cherishing. There's no, like you're in Ohm, you're supposed to just love everything equally talking about what C.S. Lewis would call of the four loves of, that C.S. Lewis outlined in his famous book by that same title, um, he talks about affection as being uh, the most universal or transcendent kind of love. But what Ohm couldn't offer me was the kind of cherishing that I have for my wife. She is a uniquely beautiful creation of God uh, that can never be substituted I can never just replace her with another woman. And in Ohm, um, the kind of uh, union uh, is uh, erasing all of those distinctions. There's no distinctions in Ohm at all. And so one of the things that really helped me get over, I would say, my addiction to Ohm was the word cherishing. That cherishing to me is something I enjoy just as much as transcendence and just as much as detachment. And so uh, the spiritual journey doesn't end with detachment the way Buddha says. It ends with cherishing. After you've detached from what is bad, you then uh, turn away from non-existence 
and you cherish, you know, cherish your wife, cherish、uh, the the world and、uh, and that specific life that God gave you, and cherish God Himself. And once I、uh, found something that I could replace that. Practice of detachment with this beautiful word of uniquely cherishing and loving something、uh, was a was was、um, freedom for me from om. Yeah, and it's it's going in the opposite direction. Before you were trying to distance yourself and get away, yes, this is bringing you closer. Yes, to grab a hold of in spite of the pain, and I think、yes. that's the key. It takes courage because it requires to embrace pain. Yeah. Now, suffering is redemptive for a Christian. It's not something that you just seek to get rid of. It's redemptive. It's、right. part of the healing process. Right. So、um, I don't know how much you're aware of this, go,、uh, being Catholic. But as I've been a worship leader, you know, as a Protestant worship leader for twenty years,、uh-huh. and I'm aware that there's a lot in modern worship music that is kind of Hindu in its thinking, in saying stuff like.、Uh, I want to lose myself in you and and stuff like、yeah. that. But also in an older sense,、uh, one of the famous、um, kind of bluegrass songs is "I'll Fly Away,"、mm-hmm. and even concepts like the rapture that many、um, evangelical Protestants have of this of God coming and sucking us all up into heaven and taking、yeah. us away. Those are all more like Hindu. A very similar in experience to because I went to the Hindu kirtans. Kirtan is this music form of music.、Mm. Uh, of yoga uh, uh, that yogis use often, and you can find it all over here in Asheville. The kirtan celebrations all over, and there's、uh, there's this sort of、uh, mystical and rapture that comes with it. And、um, and so what you're saying,、uh, you know, to me, whenever I've、uh, been in that kind of situation or circles like that, it felt very similar to that transcendence.、Um, And even、uh, John Calvin himself wanted to make this statement of、uh, selflessness by having someone else choose his wife for him, having his friends choose his wife, as opposed to cultivating that specific attachment that would come uh, from uh, and arise naturally、uh, from his nature and her nature, a bond that is unique.、Uh, and so he he、uh, there was an element of that. Um, of choosing that selflessness、um, uh, that uh, that really struck a chord with me. I was like that. Oh, that, that I'm. I've I've heard. I've practiced that my, that kind of、uh, style of thing、um, uh, when I was a yogi.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So、uh, when and when I talk about these kind of things,、um, I'm aware that my mystical experience that I pursue on a regular basis is that I'm a worship leader. You know、mm-hmm. and that. My experience has been that I have communion with God through worship,、mm-hmm. and that's not illegitimate. Not it's wonderful, but I think there are being aware of our concepts、uh, and whether、yeah. or not they're the good ones. Yeah,、uh, part of you know I I grew up in, and I am more in a charismatic vein,、mm-hmm. uh, but I'm I'm kind of、uh, charismatic circles are always retreating, like the groups、uh, tend to split off. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's all about the individual experience,、mm-hmm. and it's like I said, like about losing yourself in worship. But the the worship of the Creator God is more like the word cherish. It draws you in. Yes, which I love that line in the song. This is my Father's world. It says that Jesus who died will be satisfied, and earth and heaven will be one. Yeah, you know, true worship is one that draws us in toward each other,、mm-hmm. loving each other, having more grace for one another. 
Um, and also it's about embracing the pain that comes with that. You know, people can hurt us, you know, yeah. people can disappoint us and, um, and even our own just walk with God, you know, Jesus said, um, that we'll be persecuted, you know, so following him can involve yeah. pain. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just an important reminder. I think that, and this is the essence of this podcast. That yeah. The gospel is about finding the true you and for like, uh, it's about being made a new, yeah, so that God can draw out the real you out of uh, the one He intended, and get rid of all the the garbage that's been um, the excess garbage. You know, burn off the dross. Yeah. Yeah. There's no contradiction between you being you and lo- and loving God, as there is in uh, the Eastern uh, and I don't want to say all Eastern religions, but there's a number of Eastern religions where. Uh, the self, loving the self and loving God is a um, is like an, a mutually exclusive choice, and um, and that's uh, not true uh, for our Christian love of our Creator. Is that he um, he made the world a wonderful place where we can fulfill our our nature uh, through enjoyment of His creation. Uh, and uh, and especially we can especially enjoy creation well when we put him first before all of that creation, so that our bond with him is secure. The Creator of truth and goodness and beauty, and um, and and that is not uh, a fight against the self. It's a becoming of your of uh, truly yourself. Mm-hmm. And I find that the more I come to know who I am in Jesus, the more I can give myself away. And and that giving mm-hmm. of myself away becomes who I am, That I, because that's who God is. Like, it's he's the one who gives himself for the sake of the other. It's not he gives himself away because he was a bad idea. He gives himself away because it actually produces life. Yeah. And it produces more. Yeah. And Jesus himself had a body. Let's just remember that. Still Whenever, does. And he still does. Yeah. You know, we just remember that we have a God who's trying to get into creation, who wants to become embodied. And so these I, these disembodied ideas uh, promoted by Buddhism and yoga, that holiness is entirely spiritual and disembodied state, as if you're like this angel without a body, is not what uh, God as, uh, it's not in line with God's word and not in line with God's uh, desire to come meet us in the form of Jesus Christ in flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my dad used to say the pleasures are where the dangers are. Mm-hmm. That says like this is this is kind of a wild, crazy, dangerous, good world that God created. And yeah. Rather than say om, it's more like let's take the adventure. Yeah, let's us. take the adventure. Let's have our passions and not let them control us, but find a way to uh, to to work work with them so that our passions uh, and love bring us to the true object of love, which is our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks, John, for sharing this time with us. You have some teaching and different things you're doing online. Do you want to share a little bit? How can people find out more about Joyful Belly, your Ayurvedic pra- practice, as well as some of the online instructional videos you have on Hinduism and yeah, uh, uh, well, my website is joyfulbelly.com, and 
uh, and you can, uh, there's lots of content there, both from the Ayurvedic point of view and also on this subject of, uh, of yoga and, uh, and, you know, the fruit of my uh, research around yoga and Christianity. I put together a number of, uh, of videos uh, about what yoga believes. And you can find that on my YouTube channel and, and, and check those out. Uh, it'll go through this, the, this conversation a little bit more systematically so that you know and can really answer to that. And especially one thing to look up is the idea of, of um, uh, the uh, witness consciousness. Uh, the idea of seeing the true self as a witness only. I wrote a, uh, I have a video on that, which I think will give you the real sort of kernel and root of, uh, of the yoga view of man. Uh, another project which I also want to highlight is I'm in the process of developing a two-year course um, in, uh, in really uh, expressing uh, the Christian worldview uh, and uh, not the Christian understanding of man from like a practical uh, life point of view. And, uh, and so uh, you can check that out on the website also. Yeah, we'll have links below. In our in our plethora of links, yeah, yes. yeah. Well, John, we uh, decided not to eat lunch before we did this, and we've talked about how you know emptiness is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's time to wrap it up to go get full, huh? Exactly. <laughs> let's uh, let's fulfill our nature while yeah. we worship. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for being with us, John. <laughs> Thank you, Carl, for having me. Always a pleasure. <laughs>